From Al Jazeera English, this is The Debrief. I'm Logan Tsukolintinano. Today I'm with my colleague Hassan Ghani. And Hassan, well, he travels a lot. So I've been to Kenya a couple of times before for reporting, but to cover other stories. I spent several weeks in Dadaab refugee camp on the border with Somalia a few years ago um, and later went inside Somalia. After returning from Dadaab, I had a bit of time to kill and I was looking at things to do. And over and over again, when I looked at things around Nairobi, I'd see mention of Kibera, this massive slum on the southwest edge of Nairobi. When you hear about Kibera or you see stories about Kibera, it's always very negative stories. It's always crying babies and cholera outbreaks and rioting and so on. And we wanted to paint a, a different picture, maybe a, a more a more interesting, genuine picture of the place where you really get the, the vibe of the place. You got it. We're going to Kibera. And yes, it's a slum. Some say it's the biggest in all of Africa. Some say it's one of the biggest slums in the world. But I'll let Hassan fill you in on all of that. What we're looking for on the debrief today is the story beyond the largest and the biggest. We're trying to get a glimpse of Kabira's true soul. So stick around. We'll make it worth your while. There are flying toilets, a radio DJ with a hustler twist, and the beautiful feeling of changing lives for the better. But first, here's one thing that we actually don't know about Kibera. Nobody really actually knows how many people live there. It's so densely populated. And of, of course, it's all technically illegal because nobody has papers for the land. That's why it's a slum. And we're talking about it as Kenya's biggest slum. But sometimes when you're reading in articles about it or watching videos, it's actually described as Africa's biggest slum. You'll find wildly varying figures for its size. Sometimes it's as big as a million residents. Wow. The most accurate study I could find, which was conducted by the French Institute for Research in Africa, they came to around 200,000 residents, which I think is fairly accurate. It's huge, but it's not, you know, it's not a million people. It's, that's, it's not that big. If our listeners want to see how densely populated it is, mm-hmm. they can actually head over to Google Satellite View and look at Kibera from the air. You can barely see any roads. There aren't many tarmac roads. There are mainly small alleyways of mud in between these tightly packed homes, which are themselves mostly made of mud. You can really see the difference between this cramped cluster of jigsaw-like houses and the surrounding areas of Nairobi. So that gives you an idea of just how tightly packed it is, how densely populated it is, and just how big it is as well. All right, let's go in. Because when I think of your reporting from Kibera, the first thing that comes to mind is this scene in one of your films where, you know, you're walking very carefully on a set of railroad tracks, hands locked with a guy who tells you... Now, you see, Hassan, in Kibra, yeah. I told you don't step on any plastic paper bag you see on the road. Why? People here pull on the paper bags at night and they tie it and throw it away. That's why they're called flying toilets. Yeah. We didn't actually go there to cover this story about sewage and sanitation, but the first thing you notice when you start walking around Kibera is the waste. You simply can't ignore it. So the guy I'm walking with is Abdullah. He's our local contact who's from Kibera himself. And one of the first things he told me is is what you see in the video. He told me when we arrived in Kibera, don't step on the plastic bags. And he explained why. These plastic bags are full of human waste. There's a lack of toilets in Kibera. There are no sewage pipes. People don't have space for toilets in their homes. 
you have families or four or five people living in one room. So sometimes uh, they'll do the toilet in a plastic bag, tie it up and throw it into the street. And that's where the term flying toilet comes from. We asked him to repeat this warning that he gave us, um, but this time on camera, exactly as he had done the first time. And we asked him if he could try uh, not to use the commonly used rude word for excrement, which begins with S. So these are all full of... Full of uh, human shit, my friend. He tried and tried, and somehow, uh, despite his best efforts, he always ended up saying this bad word. And in the end, we just gave up and used it as it was. Which we're also going to do right now, so it's okay. <laughs> all right, okay. <laughs> so the, the rail tracks where we were walking are an example of how big this problem is. The bags of human waste are pretty much everywhere. The only place you could step on when we were walking on the rail tracks was the metal tracks themselves. And so we're having this conversation precariously balancing on these tracks and holding each other up. That, that in itself is an image which kind of was reflected as we walked through the rest of Kibera. You know, sometimes you can't help it. You end up having to step on these bags. Um, and for us as visitors, that's fine because we'll go away, we'll wash. But there's people who live there and have to deal with this waste every single day. So I'm thinking right now, why did it come to this? How did it come to this? I mean, one reason would surely be this informal or rather illegal aspect of settlement because people there, you know, don't own the land. And basically the shelter and the houses that they have, you know, are, are built without proper papers. But are there any other reasons as well? That's pretty much the, the main thrust of the problem. Um, as you mentioned, this is all technically an illegal settlement. So it doesn't get the sewage pipes, the water pipes, the electricity lines that a normal place would. People who want water have to pay water cartels. And one of the pieces that we were filming was with a, a local businessman called Harun, um, who was showing us the problems that he faces as a, as a resident and his children face. All the way up to here and all the way down there, this is, this is full of waste. There, yes, this is full of waste. That is human waste. Yeah? Yeah, it is terrible. If you walk through the slum, you'll see these long rubber pipes, sometimes maybe 10 of them next to each other. Why are there so many pipes? Those water cartels. Yeah. Everyone has his own pipe. And you the water. They bring water up to the end of the slum, yeah. so the cartel bring it in. Water cartels. Yeah. They don't like to be called that. What do they like to be called? They, they like to be called uh, water partners. <laughs> and these cartels can essentially charge what they like. If anyone else tries to lay a pipe down, they'll cut it and sabotage it. It's a, it's a business and they don't like competition. The problem with these rubber pipes is that they run through the same streets that are full of sewage and flying toilets. And that sewage sometimes penetrates the pipes, especially when, they've, when these pipes have been damaged and patched up. And that gives birth to waterborne diseases. Considering all of this, Hassan, what's the impact on the health of the people there? It has a huge impact. There have been many cholera outbreaks over the years, and many people have died. As you walk through the slum, you'll see kids playing in amongst all this human waste and sewage and garbage. Um, Harun, who was taking us around his area and took us to what was Nairobi River and he himself was kind of shocked again when he saw this waste in the river. It used to be a clean water but now it this is... This used to be clean? Yeah, it used to be clean water. 
He told us his own children had to be taken for medical treatment several times as a result of coming into contact with the sewage. And you know, when you're, you're a young child of three, four, five years old, no matter how many times your parents may tell you, don't play in the street, don't play in the waste, it's going to happen. And as we were talking, we saw kids jumping over the sewage, walking through the sewage, playing in the sewage. Everything is affected by this lack of sanitation and sewage. And until there's a, a proper big picture solution to this, it's going to continue. So what's next? I mean, what's being done about this? There are a lot of little projects that have sprung up around Kibera to try and find ways to solve the problem. We met a youth group that built a batch of public toilets. And what they do is they charge locals five Kenyan shillings, which is around um, five US cents, to use these bathrooms, number one or number two. Okay. <laughs> that keeps the waste off the streets and also gives these guys a source of income and employment. The guy we interviewed, one of the youth leaders, his name's Hassan Abdul Qadir, he told us that a lot of his group had actually been involved in serious criminal activity. A lot of our members, <laughs> they, they used to mug people. This street used to be a crime zone, but now we are safe. All the community are safe. They have something to give them daily bread. And this block of toilets, among other things, was their way of going legit and being welcomed back into the community. And this was just one of their projects. They also had a, a greenhouse to grow food and they'd set up a football league and many other things they were working on to try and bring everybody kind of back into uh, a more long-term sustainable way of living and get them out of uh, this kind of cycle of crime. Okay, that all helps a bit with the sanitation and the petty crime, but what about the much bigger issue of people having access to clean water? There's one uh, NGO we came across, which is called uh, Shofko, or Shining Hope for Communities. It had a lot of different facilities and projects, including a medical facility and schools and so on. One of them was a pretty large water purification plant, but it was a very impressive facility. It had a series of industrial-sized filters to provide clean water, which they then stored in their own massive water tower, yeah. from which they then sold water at a pretty low cost. I think it was something like two cents for 20 liters of water, which is very affordable. Uh, and I think it's actually probably even cheaper than what the water cartels charge for the not-so-clean water that they bring into the slum through their uh, rubber pipes. But I imagine it's a bit problematic to get the water to the people and thus bypass the water cartels, right? Exactly, exactly. Distribution is their problem. People who want this clean water need to come to Shofko to pick it up. And then carrying water across Kibera to your home isn't really easy. Mm -hmm. If Shofko want to lay down pipes they'll face the same problems of waterborne diseases infecting their pipes and the water cartels themselves will probably sabotage them by cutting the pipes because they don't want competition. So what they told us their long-term plan is is to build metal pipes which are raised in the air above the houses, away from the sewage and out of reach or at least more difficult to reach to sabotage. And I think they've already started construction of that. They have a pilot project, which so far has been successful. And they want to spread this to the rest of uh, Kabira's villages 
they'll have pipelines running to distribution points in each village where people can then go and get this clean, affordable water. So that's that's a very positive development. And the same NGO also runs another project. One of the stories we did um, was about a school, but it's a different kind of school. They have normal classes with young kids being educated there, like you would expect in any normal school. But they also have a classroom and a teacher for adult learners. We walked into the classroom and it was a pretty diverse age range from young women in their 20s to, I think one lady was 65 years old, you know, a grandmother. I mean, it's not actually, the classes aren't only for women. They're open to all. But the teacher, Celestine, told us that men generally tended to be too ashamed of the stigma attached to attending adult classes. Uh, a small number of them still came sometimes, but they found it difficult to stomach, you know, that, they, that they're illiterate and that they have to, to go to classes, whereas women were more open-minded. So when we attended the class, it was entirely women. Some of them had their babies with them. And that's where you met Victoria, who was one of the main characters of the story. Some people talked a lot about why I, I go to school and I am a parent, but I did not bother about what they say. I closed my ears. I have done it for two good years, and it is not very easy. <laughs> I have one boy with 15 years, and another one is nine years, and she's a girl. And one of the first things she told us was that people would mock her in the beginning for attending the classes. You know, they'd say things like, oh, you're a mother and you're going to school. It's ridiculous. It's too late. Why are you wasting your time? Just stay at home and look after your kids and so on. But she ignored all these naysayers. She didn't let them bother her. And I, and I personally really admired her for that. She'd been, by the time we filmed her, she'd been studying for two years. And she absolutely loved it. When I finish my school, I would like to be a businesswoman. I want to work for myself. She wanted to start her own business in the future, and she knew that would be difficult or, or nearly impossible without an education. Later on, we followed her home. She lives in this tiny little house made of mud with her two kids and their grandmother. And while we were filming her, we could see that it gave her great pride when she sat down with her nine-year-old daughter and she was able to help her daughter with her homework. It's something she couldn't do before. When they are given their assignments by their teachers, I come and I help them for the knowledge which I, I have with, I have. Hey, you have homework? Your teacher is good. She has given homework. That's good. She really was an inspiration to both me and my Al Jazeera colleague, Mohammed Tayyib, as we were filming her. This woman who grew up in this slum against all the odds, she was fighting to change her life and give her kids also the best possible future. Good, good, my child. That's really cool how one classroom is not only educating someone, but giving them the tools to give the next generation a head start. 
And I want to switch now to your next Kibira story about a guy whose work is a bit like ours, someone who, I guess, is a voice, if not the voice of Kibira. So there's a radio station in Kibera. It's called Pamoja FM. It's an attempt to give the slums, local residents, their own voice to discuss their local issues. Abdullah, who is our local contact, who is guiding us through all these stories, he put us in contact with Dallas, who is this charismatic, energetic local journalist who looks a bit and acts a bit like uh, Tupac Shakur. <laughs> He's He's got a late night uh, call-in show on the station, which is all about current affairs, but you know, not international current affairs or even national current affairs. It's local current affairs, Kabira current affairs. What he does is he goes around during the day gathering information, finds out what's bothering people, finds out what the hot issues are, and then opens up the stage at night on the station to get people to call in. People in Kibra, they feel they've been forgotten. Most of the stations in our country, they come to Kibera when there is problem. But when there is like positive or negative, we, Pamoja FM, we are there for them always. Abdul Kasim Tarajiwa. He's an interesting character. He's always got his ear to the ground to find out what's going on. You know, he's like any good journalist. He's a hustler when it comes to getting information. He's really quite aggressive sometimes to get information to find out what's going on. And we followed him on his rounds. He covers a different part of the slum each day on foot. And, you know, as we were walking with him, trying to have this conversation with him, we, get, we got interrupted every 50 meters or less because he'd be stopped by someone who wanted to say hello to him or give him some information or ask him for information. It was quite interesting to see this guy, this like one-man band, was Kabira's news service, you know? And on top of the, the radio work, he also is always carrying this little handycam video camera with him in case something happens. So he's always there, he's always first on the scene. And sometimes, you know, he's the only person with footage of what happens, and he sells his footage onto bigger stations. That's a source of income for him. So what are, I mean, besides the community and the people, you know, who consider him basically a star and someone who gives them a voice, is it dangerous for him to be a journalist in Kibera? And how do authorities react to his reporting? Right. So what he has to do is he, he treads a fine line because he lives there. And there's a lot of good and bad things happening. And Dallas told us that he gets threats all the time, especially when he's doing the job of a journalist and poking his nose where it's not welcome. You have to choose who you are going to ask the question because you'll end up having a lot of enemies. But most of the time, I know who is who in Kibra, and I know how I can handle this one and this one. Uh, he said that, you know, he's, he's been slapped across the face um, by the police when he stumbled across, you know, an officer taking bribes, and he's st stuck his nose in and tried to find out what's going on. 
They have problems at times with the police passing by. You just find a policeman taking bribe and maybe ask, hey, what is happening? Hey, slap, they slap me after realizing who I am. I then again, sorry, sorry, don't report. So he gets that kind of reaction, but he also gets more serious threats. So he has to strike a fine balance between asking the right questions and also being able to continue to operate there. He can't push too much because he doesn't have the support of a major network like like we are privileged to have, you know, working for Al Jazeera. And also we go in there and then we leave, but he lives there. So the threats to him and the consequences for him are very serious. So he can't push too much. So after reporting all of these stories, can you sum up Kaibira for me? What is the true story of this place? Kaibira has this really bad image in Kenya. If you look at the comments under the stories we published, they're really polarized among Kenyans. You'll find the local residents who are proud of where they live while accepting there are serious problems. And then you'll find a lot of Kenyans dismissing the slum as a den of criminals and thieves and layabouts who don't want to work and so on. Our experience was that this is a colorful, thriving community with all sorts of people. It has good and bad, just like any other place. The lack of infrastructure, the cholera outbreaks, the sewage problems, the corruption are what hold it and its residents back. But as you've seen through our characters, it has some amazing people who have brilliant ideas, who want to improve themselves and their communities. The problem is this, as Dallas told us, things can't really change. They can't really develop because nobody has title deeds for the land. At the same time, there are some changes taking place. Now, I mean, it's been decades, but some things are changing. The government has some new projects to build better roads, build some infrastructure. There are, in some parts of Kibera, trucks now collecting rubbish. And the locals are finding their own creative ways of making things better. I'm really interested to see what this place will look like in 10 years from now. And while Dallas was pretty pessimistic, I really hope Kibera's people find a way to make things work for them. Hassan Ghani, thank you very much. Thank you. And thank you for listening. Hassan's films on Kibera can be found on our website in the AJ Shorts section. It's at aljazeera.com slash shorts. Again, that's aljazeera.com slash shorts. If you like us, rate us and tell your friends about the debrief. Next week, we're taking you to Rodrigo Duterte country, the Philippines. Till then, be nice to each other.